to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the production designers, the cinematographers, the sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, choreographers, composers, you name it, we talk to them. And as you're going to find out today, one of my favorite categories, visual effects. And those wonderful folks from Weta Digital down in New Zealand. Um, I have been waiting and waiting to be able to air and to run the interviews I've had with Luke Millar of Weta and with the incredible Ian Seabrook, uh, underwater cinematographer uh, and for Jungle Cruise. Um, today you're going to hear my interview with Luke Millar um, and he, talking about his team and the wonderful people at Weta uh, as they bring Skipper Frank's trusty, trusty, faithful companion Proxima the Jaguar to life, as well as create those incredible rapid, whitewater rapids and waterfalls that we see in Jungle Cruise. And a lot of the foliage and creatures within the the Amazonian jungle. Um, if you haven't seen Jungle Cruise, you've heard me talk about it. You've seen me posting about it. I am so in love with this film. Um, it just, it, it's screwball comedy, alive and well. Dwayne Johnson, Emily Blunt are spectacular. Jesse Plemons is a kick in the ass. Um, it is just, but the whole premise coming, originating with the idea of the beloved Jungle Cruise ride at Disneyland and Disney World is just too delicious. Um, and yes, as I've said before, yes, we do see the backside of water in the Jungle Cruise movie and so many other fun things that are touchstones for those of us that have ridden the Jungle Cruise ride and that. All of you who haven't, once you see this film, you're going to want to go ride the ride uh, just to experience a lot of the actual elements upon which so much of the opening, uh, the humor of the film is based upon. But we're going to get to uh, Luke Millar in a second. Joining us at live at the midpoint of the show is stuntman turned director Josh Tessier. Um, film is overrun. Action adventure. It's all about action adventure today. Um, Jungle Cruise is Amazonian action and adventure with animals and rapids and 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 searches for supernatural healing elements and a tree of life. Um, but Josh's film Overrun. It's action adventure with Italian mafia, Russian mafia, bad cops, good cops, and an amazing cast. That includes Bruce Dern and the greatest American hero, William Cott, in the same film. Uh, can't wait to talk to Josh about that. I didn't know what to expect when I watched Overrun, but I am overjoyed with what I saw on screen from Josh. Um, and when I talk to him, we're going to get into some of his stunt background as well. Um, you know his work most recently in the Mandalorian. So, that's coming up at the midpoint. But first, we're going to we're going to hop on that the Jungle Cruise with Luke Millar. 
Um, Luke is just amazing. Uh, my regular listeners and readers, you all know my respect and my admiration and love for the talent that comes out of Weta Digital. Um, most of you know their work best for what they've done with Planet of the Apes and the development with Eyes and working with Andy Serkis in humanizing apes. They've been at the forefront of things with creating uh, visual effects for fur and water. Here with Jungle Cruise, they were while there are many VFX houses that are involved in the various disciplines with Jungle Cruise, just as there was with Avengers Endgame. And Weta are the folks that were responsible for the most that most glorious, uh, indelible cinematic sequence in Endgame where every Avenger and then some appeared out of the ethos to battle Thanos and his army. That was Weta. And now we've got Weta with Jungle Cruise. And with Jungle Cruise, they handled primarily th the three elements. They handled Proxima, the Jaguar. Uh, they also did uh, the bubbling piranha. The piranha are very, very cool. Underwater piranha, piranha on the top. They handle the water environments, uh, including the rapids, the river, underwater, working with underwater cinematographer Ian Seabrick in many instances. Uh, and then, of course, they have also done, they work in the jungle with this one, the flora and fauna. And they bring hundreds of those elements to life. And interestingly, and you're going to hear Luke and I talk about it in a second, is the use of light. We really have a lot of light breaking through the dense lushness of the jungle. And light is something very, very difficult. It kind of ranks up there with fur and capturing the glint in an eye uh, when it comes to challenges of VFX. And Weta has done an amazing, amazing job. Um, there are over 750 to 800 visual effects shots just with what Weta did in Jungle Cruise. Um, it's just amazing. They, they did simulation. They simulated the Houdini workflow process. Uh, they used the Man Manuka renderer, um, which is proprietary to Weta. And they first used it on The Hobbit and the Battle of the Five Armies, and then on Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And it's that Manuka renderer, uh, that proprietary technology, that is what allowed them to render hair, something that we see in full display with the development of Proxima the Jaguar. So, instead of listening to me prattle on right now, because it is a 32-minute 30, interview, uh, and we don't want to make uh, Josh wait too long when he calls in, so without any further ado, take a listen to VFX Supervisor of Jungle Cruise from What a Digital, Luke Millar. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Luke. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Well, first I have to tell you, my favorite part of the entire Jungle Cruise is Proxima. Hey, <laughs> good stuff. I am so in love with Proxima and the work that you and your team at Weta has done is so outstanding. I really thought at certain points that there was a real jaguar being used cool well thank you very much it's, it's, it's yeah, good to hear you've done such interesting things with weta over the years um 
Um, what it strikes me about Jungle Cruise uh, and your work is the the amount of light. I'm not used to seeing this much light, um, light filtering through the foliage in the forest, mm. light yeah. coming up through the water, especially with the piranha attack. Oh, that's so cool. Yep. Um, you know, is this a, a new, a newer aspect of the VFX for you, or is it because we haven't seen it, and I can't even think of other movies that really have quote unquote exploited the use of light like this before mm. and done so beautifully? I think, I mean, for me, it's it's not necessarily that it hasn't been possible before. It's definitely, I think on this show in particular, it was uh, very much the filmmakers were happy for us to push the envelope on it. I think that's probably a better way to describe it. And, um, you know, like obviously we did a lot of jungle work for this, uh, a lot of environment work for this movie. And, um, you know, a lot of the components that go into those jungles are very similar. You've got river, you've got river banks, and you have trees, foliage, uh, fauna and flora. And uh, one of the ways in which the production was uh, very keen on sort of distinguishing as well as sort of varying up the, uh, the foliage or the plants or the flowers that you saw within it was, was the sort of the lighting design within each uh, jungle environment. So, you know, we've got the, we did that sort of uh, very kind of beautiful uh, sunset um, environment with the lily pads, mm -hmm. uh, which had a lot of, a lot of that kind of atmospheric um, mist and things like that. And then you had the, uh, the, the rappers, which was incredibly sort of overcast, which is usually something which people lean away for, from in, um, in in movie lighting and, and visual effects because it always looks very flat. But uh, the filmmakers were very um, keen from day one that this was the lighting design that they wanted to go with, and, and that's what we sort of worked with to add in all of that detail. Uh, and then, you know, the nighttime environments as well with the fireflies and the, and the Pukumachuna trees. So there was, there was lots of, like, um, you know... There was lots of opportunity to explore and, and come up with cool, creative ways to differentiate between all those different places so they felt like different places, and, and that was one of the uh, the main sort of mechanisms that we used. Yeah, I mean, it, it's beautiful because you really feel like, because anybody that ever, you look at National Geographic photos and images, you look at videos or films, and there is, like, there are so many different microcosms along the Amazon. Mm. So, and I really felt like we were experiencing all of those on this, yeah. on this jungle cruise. And it's because of your work, you know, capturing the way light filters through um, a lot of that foliage or casts light on some of the flower, some of the blossoms, is mm. it looks like Mother Nature has just sun-kissed it all. Yeah, cool. So uh, that's what we were going for. So I'm, I'm glad you uh, glad you liked it. Where do you even start with a film like Jungle Cruise? Did you get to go on a trip to the Amazon and actually see for yourself um, and break things out, do plate work? Um, how what was that process like for you coming on board, taking this cruise yourself? 
Okay, so um, yeah, we did get to go to the Amazon. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go to the Amazon. I was still uh, ah. finishing up another project at the time, ah. so I had to send. So I had to send one of the reference photographers here, which to this day I'm still kind of bummed about that. Like that would have been such a cool trip to go on, but um, she was she was great and she had a great experience. But we we sort of chatted a lot about the kind of things that we really were interested in, and, and while she was out there, the things that we wanted to take a look at and photograph. But there's so much be said about looking at and experiencing these things firsthand uh, for sure but obviously since I couldn't do that uh, physically myself I had to kind of uh, live vicariously through her um, but she, she she brought back some fantastic records which really did form um, kind of the building blocks and the, the plan I guess for starting to flesh out all of these environments and you know a lot of the time it's we couldn't use the plates directly because uh you know there was components that weren't quite right with them but it gave us really good sort of um visual maps i suppose for how we needed to lay things out uh, these plants live in the water like this these uh lily pads sit like that and you get these kinds of trees and this is sprinkled with these and at the the edges of the banks it looks like this so it gave us like incredible incredible um detail and reference to match that you you normally wouldn't get that kind of level from just looking at pictures on the internet so um that really did become a good springboard for us to start building out um and creating these environments uh, but always keeping one eye on reality so that we can just make sure that everything's always anchored, even though obviously, you know, there's quite a lot of fantastical components to the movie. We always wanted to make sure that a lot, a lot of it was as anchored in reality as possible. Yeah, I'm telling you, Disney needs to bring you guys in to actually work on the actual Jungle Cruise ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still haven't been on it. I've been to Disneyland uh, a couple of times, and I've never actually been on the Jungle Cruise ride. But it's it's on my uh, it's on my bucket list the next time I go there. <laughs> Everyone's it, like, it's not that it's not that great. It's it's beyond fun, and of course, anybody that uh, has been on the Jungle Cruise ride with all the lame puns and the, yeah. that your tour guides do, all of that is jam packed. In the ver in the opening of the film, so for anybody yeah, the, that the pause, yeah. yeah anyone that loves the, the ride, it sets them up to love the film. If you see the film and you hear all that, it's going to make you want to go to Disneyland on the ride. <laughs> um, so for my money, it's a win win either way. Um, yeah, absolutely. But you know, how early on did did you and your team get involved in this? Because there's so many elements to Jungle Cruise, and I know there are, there are multiple digital company, you know, VFX companies yep. like Weta involved. So I'm curious about you know how what technology uh, did did you guys have? You know, how early did you come in? What set you guys apart? to handle this water work and Proxima and a few of the other things? Well, I mean, in terms of uh, when we started on the project, it would have been just after they wrapped principal photography. So they were just getting into um, doing these additional um, shoot uh, kind of splinter plate shoots and reference mm -hmm. shoots. So they, so taken the, the water is a good example. They, um, they, they did a, a plate shoot in uh, Colorado, I think, of a, of a rapids um, over there, which the intention was to hopefully try and use some of that plate photography for the rapid sequence. But um, 
when we when, when that footage came back, we realized quite early on that it, it wasn't the scale that was required by the filmmakers. Like it was great reference and it gave us a really good insight into how rapids looked and how they worked, but it didn't we wouldn't be able to use it directly because it just yeah, it would the, the, the river would have been too narrow and once you put the boat in there then it didn't look that dangerous anymore. So uh, so that that we were involved in quite early, and from a technology point of view, I guess we had to be involved in quite early because, uh, as a sort of a computing undertaking, that that rapid sequence was pretty uh, intense. Um, it, it required like a huge amount of water to be simulated, and and uh, I, I couldn't really appreciate it actually from the from the start of the task as to quite how vast that would be but um, because the water starts off at one end so we had to basically create a computer simulation of this entire rapids um, from start to finish uh, that would run over uh, you know like a a minute long or something like that and that really you know we've got some pretty powerful computers here at Weta but that really did push the limits of what of what we could do and um, you know, we'd, we'd sort of place the rocks in the water, and we'd place everything underneath the water, and then we'd sort of hit the button and run all these simulations on top of it, and hope that what we got out the other end would be what we wanted. And then we didn't really get any creative notes on it because any big changes to the river would require two more week turnaround time to just to just to simulate a new river. So it was it was pretty it was pretty intense. And um, and one other thing I've, I've often said about the river is, is water is one of those things which scales really badly. So you have to get the detail into it, otherwise the whole thing feels too small. It feels miniature. And so yeah, we, we had to sort of develop some technology to um, to be able to blend in high res stuff depending on where the camera was um, mm-hmm. within the sequence to be able to get that detail and to be able to sell the scale of it. And and it's probably one of the things that I'm most pleased with in that sequence uh, is just the level of detail that we, we were able to get to uh, with like the foam, the bubbles under the water, like all the various components that make up uh, that environment. Um, and yeah, it, it, it works really well. Like it, it was such a, such a cool sequence to be a part of. Yeah, that white, the white water part of the rapids, mm. just, I was amazed. And as you were just now talking, my mind immediately went, even before you talked about the bubbles and the foam, yeah. I immediately was envisioning that white water again in my head because it is so standout and so real for anybody that's ever seen any kind of rapids, big or small. It That water does have its own proprietary viscosity so to speak Mm. and it really comes through here on film Uh, you you really did a wonderful wonderful job with the water work and particularly those rapids you know i don't know what what i love more the detail of the water work the lighting or proxima it's a tough call (laughs) it's a tough call luke uh (laughs) Yeah, now you yeah. you're using the blend of the the Houdini and the Manuka renderer on this. No, this was this was entirely Manuka render, but it was uh, simulated in Houdini. So the simulation took place in Houdini, and then it was uh, handed off to. So we got a bit of a proprietary step in between, which blended all of the simulations together, and then that was all rendered in Manuka. Wow. Now is this is this the biggest push? The most taxing that you guys have given Manu- the Manuka to to render, because I know it was first used a number of years ago 
for The Hobbit, and then also on um, Dawn of Planet of the Apes for The Hair. Yep. Because it worked. Yep. But this seems like this was really, this pushed the, it pushed it to its limit. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, this was very taxing. I mean, the the one uh, the one thing which actually did help in terms of I mean, there's a lot of this. One of the things with that river as well that you don't quite realize is the amount of stuff that's going on under the water that's going on on top of the water. Like there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff, and, and light actually does penetrate further down. So you get the detail. A lot of the detail that you get in the river is stuff that you're seeing underneath the water, not just the, the stuff that's on top. And and that's where Manuka and just pa- just path tracing renderers in general, uh, that's where they 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 sort of trip up um, because that's where the complexity is. Is as soon as the light has to pass through into semi-transparent things like water or glass or things like that, it starts to crank the complexity through the roof. So, And this is this was even more insane because you would get uh, light would pass through the foam into bubbles, into the water, you know, like there were multiple levels of which um, that had to all resolve itself. Wow. And, of course, you also did um, the waterfall sequences where in the cove, you did the above-ground waterfall yep. sequences in the cove where we've got the underground puzzle lock that Ian Seabrook yep, exactly. came in and shot. Because I have to say, I, I've already talked to Ian about his underwater work and the, and the lighting and the challenges he faced underwater mm. that have to come in from above. But you also need that cohesiveness and that continuity yep. of your lighting so it matches so I love how the seamlessness of what we're seeing above the water with what he's got happening under the water. Yeah, so that that we actually did normally those would be two different things, you know, like you'd have the underwater thing and as one as one world and then you'd have the above water thing as another world, but because the water drains, you you end up seeing both, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, you end up with both environments. So we, we actually had to build the whole thing as one giant uh, funnel, I guess, as, as you would call it. Then once we got into the water, it was obviously uh, creating a look whilst you were under the water to make sure it matched back to the, all the plate photography, but that it actually still keyed back into above the water. And as the water drops as well, to make sure that those three pieces all kind of connect back together again. So that was definitely one of the, one of the trickier challenges because, uh, you know, um, sort of three connected components but they were all created in in sort of isolation that we had to kind of bring all together uh for that for that moment yeah because that cove area and the waterfalls is just beautiful on its own but then when as you said when you have the water rising and falling and the puzzle piece essentially i know it was being lit hoisted on by cranes and mm. poor Ian had all the, the pressure of 85 pounds of camera gear on him as he's <laughs> yeah. coming up uh, in the water. But yeah. it's very seamless so that the water texture is, because that's generally, that can be a big giveaway, is, the te- is that yeah. water texture that something is mm. not matching. And it's perfect. It, it, yeah, we, we there were a few shots where we had to match back into the, to the photograph water and and that was those were very tricky in terms of getting that match, and we definitely iterated a few times to try and get it so that you wouldn't be able to tell where one started and where one uh, finished. Yeah, just just beautifully done. 
So now talk to me about my beloved Proxima and all those other animals. You didn't just, there's more than just Proxima. Everybody else yeah. just gets a little, a little one second pop on, but. <laughs> it's, it's funny. We actually, I, I watched the movie last night and I'd forgotten how much we created for it. There's a lot. There's obviously there's the, the monkeys in the, in the market near the start of the movie. Mm -hmm. You've got the toucans in the cage as well. Um, the piranha, obviously, that attacked Dwayne. And then uh, within the environment, jungle environments, there's a whole load of different um, sort of pieces of motion, monkeys, butterflies, uh, uh, macaws, um, toucans. Like, there's a lot. That's, in every single, uh, every single shot, we would always try and jam-pack as much uh, life as we could into the jungle and a lot of the time it's quite subtle but it's it's there like if, if it's not there you miss it but if it's there you just take it as part of being part of the jungle you know um so that's sort of the the, the general kind of creature work but obviously proxima was sort of the the star of the show is it in terms of the creature work that we did and uh you know she's she's uh she's a character in herself um and you know one of the one of the things one of the biggest sort of uh challenges was trying to walk the tightrope of of creating a character who who um was ultimately you know a, a real jaguar she didn't need to talk uh thank, thank, luckily <laughs> um but yeah but um but she still needed to perform things which uh, jackie wouldn't normally do um and she had to also create that you had to create that personality and that was kind of the, the thing it was sort of uh you know you couldn't just create a a pure a pure jaguar because um it wouldn't it wouldn't give she wouldn't have the personality that she needed so uh, one of the things that we had to do was when we were trying to create this personality was look at um you know we did we looked at uh taking cues from dogs as well obviously frank and proximus relationship is uh, obviously a very cl a t close one uh, like man's best friend so mm -hmm. Um, you know, we, we sort of took some cues from that. We also looked at uh, sort of house cats, lions, um, tigers, all sorts, just to kind of take little snippets of bits that we could sprinkle in there to help um, with her connection with the, with the actors and, uh, and, and give her that sort of personality. Yeah, she has a really wonderful personality, just like the monkeys at the beginning uh, of, <laughs> yeah. of the film, running through the marketplace. And that's something that, Weta has always done so well, and I think the, one of the greatest examples is in the Ape series of really bringing out the personalities of, yeah, sure. of animals. Um, and here, I, I love that you mentioned looking at dogs, because there's a lot of Proxima that is very much like a dog in the way she goes into her little cage, the way she comes out, the very dog-like, I yep. want to please my master... Or, or my, you know, my, yeah. my human. Um, and you see a lot of that. But I'm all, I also noticed, I'm looking at um, when Frank is rubbing her head, touching her head and talking yeah. about Proxima, and she's not the first. And he goes into his whole history um, with yeah. Lily about the other animals. So we get to see the black leopard and we, all these other iterations. The hair. Weta does hair and animal fur like nobody else. The eyes and the hair are stunning. Yeah. And to actually see his hand like running through the coarse hair on the top of Proxima's mm. head 
um, and see it move like coarse, yeah. short hair would be. That little detail, it just stands out in my mind on seeing that. It's just wonderful. Mm, and that 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 is was one of the challenges with her is um sh- you know short hair like that is is one of the hardest sort of cells mm-hmm. um long hair is a lot easier because you get a lot of detail with it and it's quite easy to move it around but when you get shorter with it it becomes a, a, a you know a much harder task to look convincing as well and um and yeah that was you know people we've got a lot of evidence a lot of shots to, to sort of really sell that that kind of level of interaction and it's not even just the hair it's when he rubs her scalp. We also had to make the skin underneath his hand Move. slide back and forth mm-hmm. as well, because it kind of slides against the scalp when you when you when you stroke uh, a dog or an animal's head. Like so, it's, 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 there's two simulations going on. You got the the fur itself moving, and then you got the skin underneath, which is moving the larger kind of uh, mass as well. So it's those those two components that that really kind of sell that connection. And then because she's a jaguar and she is spotted. You also have to worry about the color movement of the spots. Yeah, yeah. We there's a lot of there was a lot of uh, uh, sort of tuning of that. There's um, and with the with the spots as well, you've obviously got the, the the pattern of them in themselves, but with the fur on top of that, it's um, there's actually two sort of layers of fur. You've got a very short layer, which is the majority, and then you've got these long guard hairs that, that sort of go over the top of it. And mm-hmm. those give, uh, those are what give those the spots that kind of smeared look, that look like they're not totally sharp. They're kind of smeared mm-hmm. along the direction that the hair runs. And so that was another thing we sort of ended up tuning quite a lot is to try and give her that, that look. So she, she didn't feel completely brand new. Like she felt like she had some history to her. Um, but that it, it also felt like she, uh, you know, she was real, and that and that that was one of the components that we ended up sort of tuning quite a lot, just to give us that level of uh, kind of realness, but without it looking too fluffy. That was always the, mm-hmm. the the kind of the trade-off. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't look fluffy. She looks very sleek, very mm. very sleek and stealthy, which is something else with her movement. You you have her moving. Not like she's a spring chicken, but that she's had, her muscles are built up, so she's had a while to buff her yeah. body. Um, and I like I like that because it really plays into the legend uh, yeah. of Frank and the story so that she's not moving like she's a young cat. She's got, no. she's got some, some wear on her. She may have a little arthritis here and there. You know, you get up there <laughs> in age. But all those little details really add so much because she is such an important character in this mm. film. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say one of the things is that was, it's almost a bit of a story point. I mean, when Frank talks about the backstory and the cats that he's had along the way, is we definitely wanted to make it feel like these guys have been together for a while. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't like it just found Proxima like two weeks earlier kind of thing. Like, they'd, they'd already spent a number of years together. So that's why we sort of lent into an older cat rather than it being, you know, very young and fresh and, and, and sort of, you know, active and, and excited. Like, she, giving her a little bit more attitude, I, I guess, as it were, kind of helps sell that they've been, you know, they've been through a lot together and they've been together for a long time. Yeah, you know, really, really well done. How long would you, how many of these disciplines were you working on 
concurrently? Or were you, or did you try and finish up water work and then move on to Proxima and then move on to the jungle? Or did you have your teams working on everything concurrently? Um, yeah, everything, everything concurrently. Like, so we had, we were developing everything at the same time. Obviously, it's different people with different specialities doing different bits. But um, yeah, working on everything just to sort of bring it up to the to the the level required. And also one thing sort of helps inform the other, like when we were sort of starting to um, show Proxima for the first time, um, one thing I was quite keen on is, you know, to put her into a jungle context. She never actually ended up in the jungle in the movie, but we sort of created a little scene for her so that when we showed her, we could show her uh, actually in the environment of which you would expect to see a jaguar. And that really helps as well. So that, that kind of uh, allows us to kind of double down because you... Not only are you showing what the jungle looks like, you're showing what the jaguar looks like, and you're putting them together as though it's like a, a shot from a BBC documentary, you know, and that really does also help to sell the realism. Uh, you know, if people look at it and think that it looks feels like a, a documentary, then you know that both the jungle and the cat are working. So mm-hmm. that was um, that was something that we we did, and it, and it, it paid off. You know, how closely do you work with the director? Did you work with Jamea? And that is the first part of my exclusive interview with Luke Millar of Weta Digital talking about the Weta work on Jungle Cruise. Uh, there's still a little bit more of Luke's interview to go, and we're gonna, I'm teasing you. You're going to hear the rest of it at the end of the show. Um, but also, don't, don't panic if, if you miss any part of it because the entire interview will be up online in this really... Very beautiful video slideshow, so you can actually see the images and the process of what Luke's talking about uh, in developing things like Proxima and developing the water and the piranhas bubbling underwater. That will be up tonight. It's already finished. We've been under embargo, so it couldn't go out. Um, but you'll get be able to see the images and hear nonstop Luke's interview uh, it'll be on our YouTube channel and also on BehindTheLensOnline.net later tonight. Um, but we're going to come back to Luke's interview at the end of the show today, so stay tuned. But right now, we're going to shift gears. We're going from action on the Amazon to action with bad cops, good cops, a, a Russian mafia, Italian mafia. Oh, my God. We got Josh Tessier here. <laughs> My God, Josh. <Hey. laughs> it works out perfectly. You know, we go from the Amazon to God only knows what all is overrunning the place with overrun. Um, oh, man, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome. Hey, Debbie, how are you? I am so excited to have you on the show. Uh, I get so thrilled when I have stuntmen turn directors. My heart lies with second unit stunts, always has. Oh, man. Um, I worked second unit a number of years ago, many, many years ago. Uh, and I was very lucky that when I first came to L.A., I was taken under the wing of so many of the guys in the old Stuntman's Association. And these were the guys that had been doing the John Wayne, John Ford, John Houston movies. Um, yes, so 100%. I, you know, I have I have cherished every intro they ever did, every every friendship. 
Uh, one of my oldest friends, Neil Summers, is, I mean, I think his very first film was a John Wayne film. Um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, back in the 50s. But uh, so I have great love. And then, of course, you get into the more modern aspects of stunts. And you look at, uh, you know, there's Fred Waugh and Mickey Gilbert. And then you get Mickey's son, Lance. And then you get Fred's son, Scott and Rick, who are now both acclaimed directors in their own right. They uh, are. Yeah. So I my love for stuntmen turned directors knows no bounds. And you are now part of that group, Josh. That is so exciting. Wow. That's just, I'm even more excited than I was to talk to you. This is great. <laughs> you know, talk to me. Tell us, because we don't want to give anything away uh, with Overrun. Tell the listeners what this story is about. Well, at, at its core, boy, you put me on the spot, Debbie. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at, at its core, you know, I... As a director or a filmmaker, you know, any filmmaker, I feel like, you know, it's dealing with like more dilemmas. And I like anti-heroes and heroes. And I think it's just a journey of um, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, trying to do something right. Whether it's on the right or wrong tracks, I think the movie just kind of uh, follows up without getting, without giving anything away. I feel like that's what the story is about, is about this man's journey, about uh, protecting his family and trying to do what's right in a bad situation. And again, I think that I think that's very cagely that very cagely good description of Overrun okay. because then you know we bring in the, the different mafia factions, um, which are really you really get the breadth and the depth of these characters because of your casting. You know how in the world you get Robert Miano um, as Ray Baron. On the Italian side, so to speak, you got Bruce Dern, <laughs> um, uh, you know, on heading up the Russian side of our of our debate and, and action adventure that's happening. Then you get William Cott, the greatest American hero thrown in here as a cop. Johnny Messner thrown in here as a cop. Chris Tellman thrown in as a cop. But then you give us, as, you know, a right-hand guy to our hero, Marcus, played by Omid Zadar, um, you give us Jack Griffo, who steals the show, as Augie. This casting... He's so great. Oh, my God. I, I, you know, he blew me away. And all I kept thinking is I'm watching this character of Augie and Jack's energy that he puts into Augie. As the high-tech hacker, you know, all surveillance, I kept thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's Damien Smidelli on General Hospital. It's that same kind of... (laughs) I kept thinking of Brad... I love your references. I kept thinking of Bradford Anderson, because that's how we know his character of Spinelli so well for decades on General Hospital. He is the... the overexcited surveillance hacker computer guy, you know, earwigs in the ear, and then all of a sudden there's no electricity, and you're going, okay, where am I going? Where am I going? Wait, 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 wait. And you hear that panic and that frenetic energy. Um, This casting is so perfect, Josh, 
for each of these characters to portray these very, very specific ind- individualized characters. I don't know how you pulled it off. So uh, I'll tell you a little story um, with Jack. So, uh, again, we shot the movie in 15 days. Wow. So we didn't shoot it in a very long, yeah, in a long wingspan. And Jack, I, I used to stunt coordinate a television show called The Thundermans. Yes, you did. And Jack was the star of The Thundermans, and Chris Tallman played his dad. And I actually got William, who we've been friends. He's like my dad. I love William so much. And he ended up playing Jack's grandfather on that show. So I've known Chris and Jack, and, and I've known Bill the longest. And I've known Robert. Robert was the first person I met in Los Angeles when I came out. And, uh, and all these guys have been really dear friends of mine. So coming over the concept and getting these guys, it was, um, I just kind of called them and said, Hey, I wrote a, I wrote a thing for you. You down? And they're like, and of course, so all of them were like, yeah, of course we're down. I was like, great. This is awesome. Um, Jack, we shot Jack in the day. Wow. And he's so used to the face of kid shows. So all of Jack's stuff and, you know, Omid also worked on the show, mm-hmm. um, for the, the, the four year run that we were on um, Thundermans. And so he's very comfortable with Jack. So getting through all that footage and getting through all that stuff, and Jack is such a pro. I, I, I love him. I'm glad you liked him, by the way. That's, that's great. You know, I, he deserves the love. He's, everybody seems to really enjoy Jack, people who have seen the movie and all that fun stuff. So I'm really gra- glad that you uh, gravitated towards him. And, and it's very funny that you used the reference of uh, General Hospital. Because I, that was like a, a key point. People were like, "What are you talking about?" I was like, "Watch this character. It's a lot of fun. Kind of similarities with it." So I, I love that you referenced that. Well, here I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you a, a real piece of trivia. You'll appreciate one of the shows that I worked on almost forty years ago. Um, I did some some pickup work on three or four episodes of Greatest American Hero with William Cott. Oh man! Yeah. Did you? Yes, I did. How was Bill back then? Because I know Bill now. I didn't know Bill then, he, but I, I love him so much. He was a doll, and what was so sweet is the way he would always defer to Culp. Um, he, yeah. you know, it's like fans would come around. We were on location for some of these. Um, one episode in particular, we were in Studio City um, at the old Hi Ho Motel, which is no longer in existence, which mm-hmm. actually was owned by. Lon Bender, who is now an Oscar-winning sound guy, owned by Lon and his family. Uh, I can go so inside baseball; it's, it's ridiculous. Please, but Please. Uh, no, we were filming there, and the trailer—you know—the star wagons were there before they were star wagons. Lyle Wagoner hadn't really developed his his dynasty uh, yet, but the fans—it's like. When Robert Culp was coming out of the trailer, they're screaming, they're applauding, they're yelling. And, and William just stood back and just let him have the accolades. It was really something to watch. Really incredible to watch his kindness and his deference to this veteran. And I've never forgotten yeah, that. He, never forgotten that. He is. He he holds uh, Robert in such high regard, uh, and uh, and and his stories are wonderful from Pippin to um, 
the greatest American hero. So like even when we met, like he's such a, just a, a wonderful human. And, you know, I didn't really have anybody when I came out here. So like he kind of, we just kind of became family. You know, he was a musician. I mm-hmm. played with him in his band. I was a drummer for him. Wow. A long time ago. And, but like, he's, he is so great. And he still has that, by the way, that humility. Like he's so funny. Every time I bring something to him, he's like, well, if it fits. And then he's like, well, there's probably someone better for it. I'm like, Bill, you're going to be in the damn movie. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he's, okay, okay. Yeah, the last time I saw him was at a TV Land uh, event uh, that he was oh. at. But he was always, you know, I loved whenever I would get a chance to work on that show. And as I said, I only worked on uh, three or four episodes um, doing pickup stuff. But, oh, my God, to be around talent, the, the quote-unquote stars of a show who are so authentic and nice to the crew, to the fans, that stays with you because you don't, it's getting rarer and rarer in the business today. It really is. I, I can't, you know, because I still, I still do a lot of stunts and I still perform and, and coordinate and do second unit still because I love it. It's part of my blood. You know, I mean, you know, second unit guys, like it, it never leaves us. Yeah. So, um, uh, it, but it's, in, in watching today and all the egos and all that. But that being said, you know, I think surrounding yourself with people who are like-minded and who are very kind. And that's why it was really fun because, you know, we strapped this movie like by our bootstraps and it's the people who wanted to be there were there. You know what I mean? And getting Bruce Stern was just an added, <laughs> been, it was just an added plus. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the minute I, when I first got the blast on this and I saw Bruce is in, I'm like, oh my God, I think the man is working more now than he did for probably a 15 year stretch. Uh, right? You know, 20 years ago. I it, He is indefatigable. Um, it just, it's, it's amazing. It is amazing. But, you know, you get this great cast and you cast everyone so appropriately. That that is something that really struck me, Josh, as a first-time feature director. Now, granted, when you do stunt coordination, you have to get the right guy for the right stunt. Period. Yes. Hands down. Um, You cannot mess that up. Um, No. So you understand the importance of casting. But here, now you've got to have somebody... You've got, they have to be able to, to portray a personality, not just move and execute phys- something physical. And you really did a great job with this casting and matching each actor to their role. Uh, that really. Well, thank you very much. It's very kind of you. But something else that you do, um, your production values are so well done. I love your. I love your cinematography. Uh, Thank you. That's Gev. Gev. Gev's cinematography is beautiful. You've got texture. You've got richness. You know how to use color. Um, you've got some of those sequences with little twinkle, where he's got little twinkle lights in the. You know, the plays off in the production design. And the rich color, and then you contrast this. You've got some very powerful scenes with sparser lighting, more stripped back, um, with Cott's character of Detective Dobbs at a cemetery. Um, it's really wonderful the visual tonal bandwidth that the two of you have developed and designed. I'm curious, how challenging was that putting this visual it, it, tone together? Uh... 
I mean, it was uh, it it was actually fairly organic, you know. I mean, with me and Gev, because um, like we had a different compete, and it just wasn't working out. And Gev came in, I think, eight or nine days before we started shooting. Oh my god! And I uh, and I had done some stunt stuff for a TV show that Gev was operating, and our one of our other producers, Justin, who came in clutch with some great great assets. Um, great people that came along and, and really just were, were for the cause. He introduced me to Gev again, and we, we just had a great relationship because I'm a gearhead. And the thing is, is I went to school for post-production back in like 2006, 2007. So I went to school as a colorist. And I understand the space, and I understand how to talk to, to Gev. And we just got on, and he, was, he merely knew what kind of movie we were making. And I'd already had a bunch of uh, storyboards and ideas and, and he was just able to jump on and just support that and then have his own ideas and we were really able to make it come alive. I mean, like, he really made some great choices and convinced me to shoot anamorphic um, just because when you're shooting so fast, you know, like, I, spherical and full frame, you know, then mm-hmm. you can just recrop if you need to, but he convinced me because he felt like for this particular type of movie, you don't get to see at our budget range anamorphic right. and it gives it more scope and you can really play with um the color and and what you're looking at and you know so i just kind of followed his lead there and we just attacked it together and it was fairly organic like we, we were a great team I, I love working with them and we'll be doing so in the next one yeah i mean i i love the visual tonal bandwidth here and you know you talk about the color and it really it pops when it needs to pop. You pull it back, um, and then you also complement so well. Uh, you know, I mentioned you know caught in the cemetery sequence, and you know number one, the whole look for his character, Detective Dobbs, it gives you that whole Columbo vibe um, with the raincoat. He's always got his he's got his yeah. raincoat on. I don't know about the hat, but. <laughs> That was, you know, listen, I let Bill do his thing. Bill wanted the hat. He wanted to feel this curmudgeon character. And I was like, uh, I was like, hey, man, I, I'm in it. Because, like, he, Bill's the type of guy who, like, he likes to embody through wardrobe. Yeah. And his look is really important to him. So, like, we had ideas, and I had, like, a whole mood board of all these characters. And so we kind of went with it. And he's like, what do you think of this hat? I was like, I think it's ridiculous. But it works for your character because you're trying to hide behind yourself. Yeah. And so you're trying to do anything else. So it works for me. Well, he's, and, he's and trying I, to. You know, what's funny is we almost cut that scene. Oh, and wow. That was, yeah, that was such an important scene to me because we were long. You know, we had to cut some time out for pacing and stuff. And to me, that scene was really important just because it gave you a little bit more insight into Bill's character and, like, his and his partner's relationship. And me and, and um, Brady, our editor, uh, just thought that if that would be the last thing to go if we had to snippet mm-hmm. but we were so glad that we kept it in because i felt like it slowed things down and it really is a pretty scene and you know there's a lot of scope there and with the crane and all that fun stuff and i thought it was a very visually striking piece and it was a good conversation so like i'm glad that we ended up not okay it out. i'm glad you actually brought that scene up it makes me feel good i love <laughs> i love that scene and now you just you just brought up one of my favorite words and i know one of director Dion taylor's favorite words crane you used a, you used a techno crane on this. Yeah. So funny story about the wow. crane. Wow. Um, Ryan Elliott, 
who was our who was a crane op, and he's a very dear friend of mine. We've known each other since we've been out here, and you know he didn't have he was going to move back to Indiana, and I let him stay in my house room free at the very beginning uh, when we were going, and you know he kept with his dream and with what he was doing, and now he runs. I mean, he owns everything. Like he's his his he's doing so well for himself, and he's so talented. But like he you know, he supports me as much as I support him and he really wanted to come out. And so he gave us a really good deal and, you know, uh, brought out his, you know, his two techno cranes that he had, you know, one of which was like a 45 foot and the other one, I trying to remember was a smaller, I think it was a 20 foot. Mm-hmm. Um, but like he was just very kind in doing that. And we've known, and we've worked together for so long. So the, having that support was just great. I mean, and, and he's really excited and he would, and just so gifted, but yes, we were able to wow. use the techno crane, and we we had that available to us because of my relationship with Ryan. And although, and same thing with our Steadicam guy, you know, he came out for me as a friend. He's such a great guy. He had a baby, and he's like, "I'll come and do this." You know, he came and did a couple of fight scenes with us, and he's so talented. So it's like I just got lucky with some of the friends that I've get garnered over the years that are gearheads like I am, and were able to jump on and and see what we were trying to do and just, you know, help it to the finish line. It was just wonderful. Well, you know, and the fact that if you're going to go all out and you're going to use a crane and even with a steady cam, the fact, and then you're going with anamorphics, which I think are perfect. And I was, I was, if you hadn't said it, I was going to ask you, you know, did you shoot anamorphically or, or did you juggernaut with this in post? Um, because this is the kind of, of gritty kind of film you want in anamorphics. You want it, especially yes. with when we have something like the cemetery scene or we have some of the action sequences or when Marcus is sneaking around in a building trying to get to the safe in, in the, you know, number. I love movies set in cemeteries and mausoleums anyway, because um, you See, never I, know. You I ne- can, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> smelling what you're cooking. You, never, <laughs> you got so much potential there for storytelling. Um, <laughs> but. You know, with the anamorphics, and then you kick in all that that other stuff. You you want that grit, you want that big scope feel um, of the seventies. You know, the action thrillers, the crime thrillers, things like you want one hundred percent. And you get that with the anamorphics, and no matter how good post is, it's never quite the same if you're making it look anamorphic in post. Well, you can't really fake what anamorphic what anamorphic right. lenses do. Yeah, you get like you said, you can do it to a, you can get close, but yes, you can't you can't fake real anamorphic lenses. Yeah, yeah, you can't fake the grain. You can't fake the fall off, because it has a very specific fall off anamorphic lenses, and and you really that that really, for me, when I'm watching a film like Overrun, I notice that. Because it plays into the tone of the story. It plays into the I agree. Um, did, uh, did, did the humor work for you? The humor, I think the humor is great. Um, I li- The humor, it's not over the top, but it's funny. So much of the humor comes from Jack's character of Augie. But then you get a lot mm-hmm. of humor from Nick Totoro's character of Doc as well. And, he is so great. Oh like, my gosh. He's so great. But then even, you know, Robert Miano, with his gruffness and his mafioso persona, 
some of that is actually quite funny. Uh, I agree. Like, it's, it's nonchalantly funny. Yes. And he's such a champagne villain. I told him when we first did this, I, I was like, uh, um, I said, uh, champagne villain, James Bond. And he goes, done, got it. And so he he able to create his thing. And, you know, Robert's like always like, hey, Josh, uh, what do you uh, what do you think? Uh, maybe we do it like this, huh? Huh? And he do his laugh. And I, I absolutely, I love Robert. And he's, he's such an incredible actor. And he's so dedicated. Like, we, that, the scene in the free, uh, freezer early on, we did that. Within, I think, an hour, maybe, hour and a half, and he knew all of his lines and was able just to go because wow. he's theatrically trained. And, and he was able to keep everybody in the scene because most of those other guys in the scene are stunt guys, yeah. stunt actors. And so it's like he's just so – I was just a pleasure to, you know, have it. And, and you know, he's just always very um, complimentary and just about the journey as well. But, yes, I agree, you know, having him be in there and be nonchalantly funny because, yeah. like, it's kind of a trope – of the mafioso, right? Yes. The champagne villain. And, and, and it works. And his hat looks really good. Let's, <laughs> let's just say yes. his hat looks really good. Um, you know, we're not going to knock hats. It's just, you know, his hat looks really good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how challenging was the editing process on this? Because you have so much happening. You've got your main plot. You have the different factions. You've got to find a balance. How challenging was it for you and, and Brady Hollingren, your editor, to find the pacing, but at the same time find the emotional heartbeat of this film? I, I think, you know, at, at first it could have been ego. Brady and I didn't think it was going to be that difficult. And it became um, a little bit more difficult than we thought, just trying to find uh, some of the pacing in the junkyard. Because Brady was with me every day, like mm -hmm. on set. Like, I, I would never go anywhere without Brady. And, you know, like, we're, we're a team. We've known each other for over 10 years, and he's one of my best friends. And we just get each other and get each other's vibes. So, you know, being there really helped feel the structure of it. But when we actually got in the post, it did take us a little longer than we thought, just because, we, like you said, it's like trying to find the balance between the the serious plot mm -hmm. and the comedy and then make sure omid is supported and and has the heartbeat for him and the sister right. so like it, it took us a little bit of time to figure that out but once we got it rolling because like we did have to move scenes around in, in the junkyard like i think that was the most difficult was trying to the pacing of when everybody comes and they're in the junkyard and it's all the, the calamity and all that fun stuff, making sure that that pacing and because that's kind of when everything connects to, to each other. So you have to make sure the heart is there and everything is there. So like that, that was a bit challenging for us. And that took us, that sequence took us, you know, uh, at least a week in that, just wow. that everything else kind of fell together and we were able to structure around it, but it was really when everything came together, when everything kind of implodes, implodes um, in the movie, was uh, um, a little more challenging than either of us thought. But it was great because we love each other and we, we, love, we love the challenge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't do any reshoot days. We literally shot just the, 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 the 15 days and, and made every bit of footage work. And, you know, when you're 15 days and you still have a movie that's an hour and uh, 43 or 44 minutes, um, I, I still say that we, we, we shot quite a bit in that amount of time. So sifting through it, and making sure we had the best takes and everybody was represented correctly was um, was some time consuming for sure. Wow, and of course, then bringing it all together 
is your scoring. Now, you know, as a stunt coordinator, you aren't used, and stunt guy, you're not used to have to worrying about your score. You know, this this is a whole different thing once you make that leap <laughs> into a narrative yeah, feature director. So what were these conversations like between you and your composer, Dustin Stonebrook, um, in coming up with what were you looking for musically? Or was it, oh, God, Dustin, help me. What should I do? Um, you know, how, how was this experience? So Dustin and I have known each other since high school. He's my oldest friend. And um, we were in a band together because music is actually very important to me. Like even in stunts and doing like a stunt sequence, mm. I'll find music that the director is like saying, I think it's like this. We'll kind of, I wouldn't say fight to music or put things to music, but we'll have like a feel. So a then rhythm. we get the feel yeah. of what they're going for emotionally through music. And, you know, Dustin and I um, have done music together, geez, since, I don't know, late, I guess the early aughts. And uh, talking to him, so now the music was a bit of a bear. The music took us a, a, a long while because there's so many different characters and so many different genres. So that was, like, I was very specific in because Brady and I like to always temp out for ourselves mm-hmm. the vibe of what we're going for. And then I, I, I brought up to um, the Dustin, like, you know, we wanted minimalist kind of feel for the drive, like a ticking clock. And, and then from there, Dustin was trying to find the... Um, the right heart theme for it and it was definitely a bear but i came in with ideas and me and dustin have known each other for a very long time so for him being able to crank out what he did and i thought i thought he did a great job i'm hoping you like the score because i feel like the score really i I do i i do like it we put a lot of effort into it dustin put a lot of effort into it i have to give him his props and i'm and I got to be honest that you're right about most stunt guys not really thinking about music, but yeah. I'm actually very particular about music. I think music is very important in general and just to me as a person. And uh, I think that um, having having music background and being able to play and read music and it helped me communicate to Dustin. Since we're old friends, I've known him. I know him very well, so I know what he can do in his crazy mm, mind of his. Because okay. Dustin, like, what I love about Dustin is I'll give him a, a, a pretty straightforward, like, like heat. And then he'll come up with some crazy idea. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy, man. And then we'll kind of mix the two of them. He'll come back, and he likes to go the extra mile just to kind of see if it works and if there's something that works in it. And then that was just the process for us creating it. And, you know, because there's a lot of music in the movie. And, um, and he really – and there's a couple of cues that we end up cutting just for – just so we can relax a little bit. Yeah. And just, just kind of be in silence, but the, the process was a big process and it actually took us longer in the post process because we really wanted the music to feel correct. And with Dustin, you know, both of us are always looking at each other like, does this work? Does this work? And Dustin's like, I think this works really well. And like, we, we don't really like it, but like, we're going on a limb going, Hey, this is for this character and this character works into this character. And then this music cue works into this music cue. So it was a bit of a process for sure. Um, um, I don't think I was like, Dustin, help me. I think we were always in collaborative uh, method, but he did have a lot on his plate because I gave him a lot to work with. I gave him like, these are the thoughts. And he goes, well, how about this? I'm like, mm, let's try it. And so like, we would kind of veer off in like Wonderland for a little bit to see if like it would work based on, you know, his thoughts on the genre that it would give him. It was, mm-hmm. it was actually pretty fun. You know, it was, it was tough, but it was, 
lot of fun, and I'm actually really proud of how it sounds. And I'm, you know, in, you're the second person to really bring up the score and, and like it. So like, I'm really glad that it resonated with you. Yeah, it definitely did. And score, score is one of the big things for me. Music and movies. I mean, I I'm a diehard musical fan. Uh, movie musical fan. Oh. My, my master's thesis was actually on the Hollywood movie musical. Uh, but uh, so music is such a big, big thing for me with any film, be it a musical or just a regular plain old drama action, you know, comedy narrative. Um, but I really like it. Now, I have a very important question for you here. Actually, I have two very Please. important questions. But this one, one of our devoted listeners actually wrote this question out and wants to know because he saw you know the one sheet for the film and wants to know why do the actors have their fingers on the triggers of their gun two of the actors have their fingers on triggers of the gun but the guns are not on target with anyone <laughs> I'm trying to think of what pictures you're doing um, it's the one sheet that that, be... it's the one sheet that's up on IMDB <laughs> Oh, oh, the one sheet on IMDb. That's yeah. so funny. You're so funny. Let's see. Let's let me, let me look it up fast. Um, you know, I'm gonna, I'm sorry about this. So, <laughs> okay. So, uh, I said I'd ask. no, no, no. It's it's it's. So our, our poster, our poster guy Blake Armstrong, who's very talented and does a lot of these. Our original poster doesn't really have any guns. And mm-hmm. it's an action film, right? So when you're selling, when you're selling a stuff, they like we want more action in the poster. So it's like, can you put a gun in it? And the pictures that we had and that we were working with, it's like trying to figure out the placement that is appropriate for the cell, but mm-hmm. also trying to keep the integrity because we didn't want the gun to be pointed at someone, at anybody. Right. That was like that was like the the note. It's like we don't want you to point it at us, but you can they hold the gun up? And I was like, okay, we can work that out. So it was more of a sales perspective of why we were putting those guns in. But the original poster is, it feels, it, there, it's, it's very much more like thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was the issue with it. And it didn't have enough like boom, boom. It didn't represent the movie, uh, what they thought. Right. you know, Because me and Blake had worked um, our concept for like a very, very straightforward, very nice, clean, you know, artwork. And, you know, people want, if it's an action film, they're like, we'll represent that. So we hadn't done that. So it was adding the guns and kind of putting them and making them placed as real as possible. That is so funny that that's a question. That that was a question. <laughs> what can I say? I know some strange that's people. Okay. What, what, what can I tell you? But now my big question for you, I mean, you have worked on so many things. I mean, Sigmund mm-hmm. and the Sea Monsters, not many, not too many people can claim that they've worked on Sigmund and the Sea Monsters and Jonah oh, Hex. Oh, man, Mighty Crop. Yeah. And, you know, Jonah Hex and Stargate Origins. But you have done something that I know a lot of, a lot of my listeners and readers will want to know about. You worked with Baby Yoda. I did work with Baby Yoda. What is, I, it, what so, is it like working with Baby Yoda? So I'll tell you, the first day I was on set... We don't know anything about what's going on. I have no idea what they're doing in the show. You know, um, I show up, Ryan Watson, and uh, it was very kind to, to have me aboard and, and help him out. And, you know, Latif Crowder, who's an incredible stuntman, who, and Brandon Wayne, who were in the suit 
most of the first season, uh, Mandalorian, that we're doing a sequence, and this is before I really knew anything. And there's a Yoda. There's a literally uh, an animatronic Yoda, like in a thing. And I, I was like, oh, there's a Yoda in this thing. That's cool. I had no idea, personally. And obviously, there's NDAs and all that. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. The wazoo. But I told my girlfriend, um, I was like, there's a Yoda in this. I was like, I don't know how it works. It's like a baby Yoda. I was like, it's a little guy. And not realizing that it was a, that's a huge, that's the, that's the plot for the first two seasons. And, um, and after watching it, but like working with it was really cool. Because although they did CGI and they helped with, uh, with the doll, like it, when I was there, it was fully animatronic. And it was really pretty cool. I mean, well, we all have Werner Herzog to thank for that, since it was Werner was the one who said, "No, no, no, have have a real one, have a real one." Um, yes, he was he was the impetus for instead of just having a <laughs> tennis ball sitting there with a CGI baby Yoda, it was no, let's have baby Yoda. Um, and it was great, and I think it just helped with everything, and obviously use, you know, they. They really, I mean, they know what they're doing over there. So, yeah. Um, but I feel like it really came together. That show was pretty intense. That was an intense show to work on. Hey, maybe you'll come back for season three or four. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but you could be too busy directing your own features. I think that that's the point. I think that uh, I'm hoping that that's what's happening. Though. But, but still, if I, there's, there's something to be said when you walk in a Star Wars set and there's an eight foot banta, you know, just like, staring at you and it's real you're like oh man that's cool you're in Tatooine like there's nothing you know it's pretty neat like if you're a Star Wars fan or if you like you know the world like it is pretty cool you know like the like the the show is tough but like it was it's still pretty fun you know and I again I have to thank all those guys for bringing me out and um having me be a part of that it was you know it's, it's really nice so well and something else that's nice is that overrun everyone can see it tomorrow VOD, VOD, digital, DVD, and Blu-ray release. Everything is tomorrow. Well, DVD actually, I think, is... Uh, when is DVD, Brady? November 16th oh, is when okay. the DVD comes out. All right. But some... everything else is there. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's. I'm going to watch it again just because there's so much happening and because the performances are so much fun. I love oh, I, I love mean, watching I, these guys. I love watching. Well, I'm glad these you guys. enjoyed it. You seem really excited about it. That makes me excited, you know, because you know, I always ask every time I'm getting interviewed. I, you know, I actually like asking, "Did you like it?" And it's okay if you didn't. We can talk about that too. But it's great that you know you have excitement for it, and I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. I like ensemble pieces too. To yeah, be honest. very and much. I feel so. like it was great to support Omid. You know, because it's mm -hmm. like his first foray being lead man yep. with all these great cast members and kind of supporting the story. And that was the point of making this movie. Yeah. Is really kind of make it comfortable for everybody making the movie. But that's okay. You can ask Annie. Annie will tell you that if I don't like the film, I will tell you I don't like the film. I will tell, oh, man. I, I will tell that. everybody. I will not blow smoke. Um because it doesn't do any good. It doesn't help you get no. better. Maybe you can explain something that was not working. Um, why the thought rationale behind it? No, no. If I didn't like it, I would tell you. I'd tell you to your face, and not just on the radio. I appreciate that, <laughs> Josh. This has been so much fun. You have to come back on the show again. Um, I would love to. You're 
you're so much fun to talk to. I'm really enjoying myself. This is great. Oh, Listening to your stories are great, too. <laughs> it's what happens when you're old and wise and well-preserved. Um, <laughs> well-preserved. <laughs> well-preserved. That's the key. Well-preserved. Stuntmen know that, that very well. That <laughs> And the methods of preservation. Oh, Josh. I can't. I can't. Stop. Stop. You know exactly where my mind went. Um, I, 100%. Yes. <laughs> oh, I can't thank you enough. This has been such a joy to have you on the show. I can't wait till we do it again. Um, Me too. A- until you direct another film again. Well, hopefully it's sooner than later. Oh, I hope so too. Josh, thank you. Thank you so much. Debbie, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. I can't, again, I can't wait to talk again. We just have, we just go grab some coffee and have a chat. We absolutely <laughs> should. Have Annie give you my info. Please. That yeah. would be excellent because I would love to just pick your brain. Yeah, have Annie give you my info and we'll do right. it. You're, you're, you're wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. If there's anything, is there anything else you want to know? Or nope, we, that, uh... that's it. Okay. Well, thank you <laughs> for, for now. your time, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Bye-bye. Thanks, Debbie. Bye. And that was Josh Tessier talking about Overrun, which everybody can see tomorrow, VOD and digital. And now, as promised, we're going to go back to, well, wait a minute. Let me find, let me find where we, where we left off. We're going to finish our interview with, VFX supervisor Luke Millar talking about Jungle Cruise. And we're going to pick it up with my question to Luke about did he work with Jean-Mé Colette Serra, uh, the director? Um, because sometimes you interface directly with the director when you're doing VFX. Sometimes you don't. So did he work with them? Um, you know, what was, did he have autonomy um, things along those lines, you know, what was Weta's relationship with the nuts and bolts here uh, and getting this done? So take a listen to the rest of my exclusive interview with Weta VFX supervisor Luke Millar. Documentary, you know, and that really does also help to sell the realism. Uh, you know, if people look at it and think that it looks, feels like a, a documentary, then you know that both the jungle and the cat are working. So mm-hmm. that was um, that was something that we we did, and it, and it paid off. You know, how closely do you work with the director? Did you work with Jamey on on this one? Um, did you have a lot of autonomy uh, in terms of infusing that personality and those traits to give a personality? Even even those piranhas, they have a personality. Um, <laughs> yeah, they did, yeah. A very a very rapid fire one, but they have one. So I'm mm. curious, how much was left to you and your team to figure out and develop the jungle personality, Proxima's personality, the monkey's personality, or was Jamed? Is he one of those directors? Is no, I want it to be this. I want it to be this. I want it to be that. He, he was very good in um, he was very good actually I, I really enjoyed working with Jomo because what I, what, what I found is that he didn't get he, he didn't have a, he hadn't in the past had a huge amount of experience with visual effects which actually to my mind was an advantage because he didn't start telling us things about what to do to the visual effects he started giving us notes like a director would direct an actor and mm. that, that was um, that was what was really useful is that 
we would talk through the work and he would he would describe what he wants uh the what the sort of the, the emotion of it is uh what the attitude is of the people the, the reactions and things like that so rather than sort of getting into i i want her foot to be here on this frame you know he never did things like that it was always about kind of as though she was he treated her like she was a like she was an actor and and this is how he wanted her to perform in the in the shot and then it was really over to us so um we we filled in all the details and all of the um all of the nuances and the subtlety to be able to convey what he wanted but really that was that was how the relationship worked and 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 that was great because it, it gave us quite a lot of freedom but obviously we we were ultimately trying to satisfy his vision so that was that was kind of the relationship and i'm guessing the sa- the similar worked for creating the jungle itself yeah the jungle i mean he he was just super pumped from day one uh, <laughs> the jungles were looking real and you know they looked like they were there and you know that's what more could you want like he was uh he was really he was really uh really happy with how that stuff came out and every, everyone was and me too as well you know like it was uh, even watching it again recently i was like you know you, when you're at the point where you you're even forgetting that you're getting the background because it's just a given as to what it is you know you're, you're watching the the acting and the performance and the story unfold before you the rest of it just kind of falls away and and you know i know what i've done my job well is when that's what happens and, and and that's what it was like which is nice you sort of forget about what you're watching and you know that they can't actually be in the jungle but you sort of suspend that disbelief and just enjoy the story which is and that that was my sort of main takeaway from the movie is like you know normally with these things you're always watching it with a slightly professional eye and going oh we could have done that bit better or no i'm not too happy about that bit but i found that i actually just sat back and enjoyed the movie which was which was great now did you and your team also do the life-giving tree and the blossom no that was uh that was a different company that did that stuff how rude they should have let you do it it's jungly. They, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they would have liked to, but unfortunately, it would have been it would have been too much for us to take on as well. So, at the end of the day, you know, how many visual effect shots do you have in this film? Any idea? I, I can ballpark is about eight hundred, seven hundred fifty to eight hundred. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was there was. We probably worked on more shots than that, but obviously, uh, as the edit evolves, things end up on the cutting room floor. But I think in the movie, it was about 750 something. Wow. Wow. Mm. So now now that it's the film is out there in the world and fans are loving it, I admit I've already seen it twice. <laughs> cool. And I will see it again because I, I just think it's so <laughs> much fun. What did, What about this particular challenge of craftsmanship Oh, what are you most proud of? What pushed you the most that you will now be able to take forward into a future film when you, you can raise your hand and say, I can do that now? Mm. I mean, obviously, all, all the experiences along the way, and this is, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but um, the thing that I actually take most away from this movie, and I think why the work was as successful as it is, is we had uh, such a great team here at Weta. Um, even even now, uh, even though the movie for us at Weta wrapped a, a year ago and it's only coming out in the cinema, the people who worked on that film, we still chat now about it, you know, and everyone looks back very fondly on those days. And I think for me, that was 
a huge component of it. Um, you know, obviously we've got sort of the various creative problems and the technological problems along the way, but those things, as, as you gain more experience, you, you just combat those things as, as in which they come. But the thing which I really took away from it is that everyone really had fun on this one. Uh, and and now that they've all, we've all sort of disbanded and moved on to new projects, a lot of us kind of look back uh, very nostalgically on, on this project uh, and, and kind of, you know, would love to kind of get back together again. I think that's the thing is like trying to create that as long as internally we can create that um, that sort of environment here where people are having fun and they will naturally uh, make awesome looking work. And that that was one of my big takeaways from this. Um, even, you know, Jim Burney, the visual effects supervisor, he said one client called to us, it's like, you, you guys you guys make this easy, you guys make this fun. And that that was such a, such a great compliment because, um, you know, that's that's what we were trying to do. Look, it's the wonders of Weta and the magic of Disney all come together. Little <laughs> little bit sounds... of little bit of Tinkerbell's fairy dust sprinkled over everything. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Luke, this has been so wonderful to get to talk to you about Jungle Cruise. I am such a huge fan of all the work that that Weta does on films, and it's always such a privilege to talk to all of you. But I have to say, I'm going to admit it. Your work on this one, I think, is one of my all-time favorites. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Oh. That's very kind. Oh, thank you, Luke. And I hope I get to talk to you again in the future about another project. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Oh, Luke, thanks so much. You go have a great rest of your day. You too, Debbie. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Mm -hmm. And that was Luke Millar, VFX supervisor on Jungle Cruise from Weta Digital. Um, that is, of course, we ran over, folks. You know we always do. Um, but I wanted to make sure you got to hear Luke. And Josh was just so much fun. We did not want to miss out on anything from Josh, especially talking about Baby Yoda in addition to Overrun. So tomorrow, Jungle Cruise is out there. You can see Jungle Cruise. Um, you'll be able to, to sit and listen and see images uh, tonight on BehindTheLensOnline.net or on our Behind the Lens Elias Entertainment YouTube channel. Also, our, our exclusive interview with Jungle Cruise underwater cinematographer Ian Seabrook will also be up so that you can hear Ian also talk about his experience in, in doing the underwater photography uh, with that whole cove and puzzle box sequencing. Uh, and how he does that and how he works with actors in underwater situations. It's really interesting, uh, the things that Ian has to say as well. So, that is all the time we have next week. We got a full show for you next week. It's Welcome to Happiness next week. I've been on, on the campaign for that film since it was on the festival circuit. And I'm beyond excited. It's got distribution and a director's cut now. And we're going to be talking with the director next week. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>